So there was a sleeping baby. And in fact, that project was of a scale that I needed probably six or eight other engineers to work with. And so I had to move out of the spare bedroom. And um, so that's uh, that's when I considered the company starting in 1999. And um, uh, we moved out of the spare bedroom, got, a, got a, basically got some desks in an office uh, that some other friends had in an engineering company. And uh, so when the guys from New York came to visit us, they had a place to come look at us. Because everybody was kind of a contractor and uh, I would, uh, of course had no capital to, to fund anything. I had to live uh, once, one month to month and get enough money in to pay our debts every month. And uh, um, so it was, uh, that, was a, that was a big adventure. And so we went uh, roughly in less than a year from, from basic needs to a working complex thing the size of a desk that did ultrasound imaging of your eye in high frequency could do all sorts of uh, mechanical contortions and look at your eye from different angles and and process all the data and generate images that unlike anything anybody had ever seen before. Scott, why did you name the preeminent Canadian medical device design company after an echinoderm that sheds its arm as a form of defense? Ah, great question. Well, it's uh, it, it, starfish are very resilient that way. If you cut off one of their arms, I don't know if they can shed them, but certainly they can regrow them. So that's they're they're very interesting uh, uh, form and that, that sort of a uh, dispersed intelligence. And I kind of I like the metaphor of the different arms, kind of giving us flexibility what we could do for our business. Because when we created the name, um, we didn't know what we were going to do exactly. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a more generalist approach, reaching out to different directions to figure out where you could take what you were doing back then, correct? Yeah, I guess you could say that. They, uh, there was a, you know, I um, recall trying to come up with a logo and uh, having an artist do various different. And then it turns out when you try to draw a starfish, which are actually properly called sea stars, um, that, uh, that uh, they all turn into people because they, they, they end up with the assist. But then you have to think about your relationship to the posture, and and uh, and so we, so the, one of the one of the postures we looked at kind of to me looked like an opera singer. It was very bold, and uh, and uh, another one was was more of in a calm, calm, reflective kind of uh, posture. And I really struggled with which one to choose, and uh, so I decided I would wad them up, throw them against the wall uh, from the papers that they're printed on, and uh, pick the one that was closest to the wall. And so I did that and, uh, I picked the one closest to the wall and I was disappointed. So I picked the opera singer. Love it. Truly evidence-based. There you go. How do you, so you kind of knew, but you can't access it without going, having some sort of an emotional experience. That's fair enough. A a nice little metaphor for a lot of, uh, innovative development. Great. Well, welcome to outside the podcast where we chat with people shaping the future of health tech and healthcare. On this podcast, we chat with founders, innovators, investors, and occasionally founders of leading medical device companies that literally shape the medical devices that will help us live healthier, happier lives. This time around, we're lucky to have with us the inimitable Scott Phillips, president, founder, and CEO of Starfish Medical. Scott, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. It's fun to, fun to talk to you. And, uh, listeners, if you're, if you're not on video, Scott has a gorgeous purple background that he showed to me is not green screen, which is 
which is very admirable. It's a very nice shade of purple. And I'm very jealous because I've got curtains in my background that I'm using for audio suppression. Uh, so going back on topic, um, you graduated from Enphys in 1989 from UBC, Scott, but you started in medical technology only in the late 90s. Can you tell us a little bit about those pre-Starfish experiences and which ones meant the most to you? Sure. I mean, so when you graduate from engineering school, unlike medical school, you don't actually have the abilities to be a great engineer. You have like the raw academic underpinnings, but you still got to kind of learn how to do it. So I actually went to work in a startup company in lithium batteries. That was the early days of lithium batteries at that time. And, uh, had a really wonderful time for about three, four years, uh, learning from some really wonderful engineers. Um, and had a chance to really have an impact on, uh, design through manufacturing, manufacturing process, a bunch of things that are a little more rare in British Columbia, to be honest, in a sort of high tech field. Uh, traveled for a bit, climbed a lot of Andean mountains, sailed around Cape Corn, did sort of adventure things like that. And, uh, Ended up in Calgary uh, because of my girlfriend at the time was doing her her medical degree there, and um, and uh, so uh, had a chance to work in all sorts of things: natural gas instruments, dental equipment, exercise equipment, uh, um, and uh, in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were they were all super interesting and challenging. And uh, I actually made the transition in Calgary to being a contractor which is one of the reasons why I was able to do a diverse range of things. So when we moved to Victoria um, in the sort of mid-late 90s, uh, I was well-established as a contract engineer, got into audio speakers after that. So we made planar magnetic, which had been one of the most sort of high-end audiophile type technologies and brought it into consumer products in a startup that I was one of the core engineers in, in uh, Vancouver in the late 90s. And, uh, learned again from a bunch of people that just, you know, engineering is really exciting when you're deeply immersed in it. There's so many levels of problems all the way up to, are we designing the right thing for the right people? That's going to help them do things. So, uh, uh, I could go on and on, but that first 10 years was wonderful and very influential. And the company I think of as starting around 1999 which was when I started taking on bigger projects that required me to move out of the spare bedroom. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like going from an employee of a company to being a contractor? It seems like there's a lot more independence in terms of what you can do, but were there any, I guess, takeaways from the transition that affected the choices that you made later on in your career? Yeah, I think... Uh, I felt like as a contractor, of course, you don't have the security. Um, but at that stage in my life, I wasn't very concerned about security. And maybe I'm kind of wired that way anyways. I kind of I had in mind I would start a company. So it was kind of like a halfway step to having a company. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as a contractor, it seems like you get drawn in, uh, or the way I was doing it anyways, at a, at a higher level where you're, you're able to have conversations about the strategy of what they're trying to achieve and so on. Kind of got exposed uh, a couple of levels higher in the organizations than I had been as an employee. Um, that uh, was, uh, was, was interesting, challenging. Uh, engineering as in its nature, at least product development engineering tends to be longer things. 
rarely do you get drawn in to just a very short term. Uh, maybe it's just also my nature and to try to keep going deeper and deeper into the problems. Um, so it's, it's kind of like half and half. You're sort of like an employee, but sort of not. Um, but you also have the flexibility, you got diversity, you can have two or three clients. And uh, I like that. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there was more engagement with kind of the uh, thought leaders of the businesses that you worked with in particular. And that probably served you well when you were starting off Starfish. So if I, if I read correctly, you started off Starfish uh, with a specific contract uh, with a company that was developing uh, an ophthalmic imaging system, uh, which you designed in a room with a sleeping baby in the background. Can you tell us about the origin story of Starfish Medical oh, beyond drawing sure. papers at a wall? So that's, <laughs> there you go. Doing papers was pretty fun too. So yeah, we lived in, so this, uh, so my girlfriend, we got married in, uh, in the mix, uh, Victoria. She did her medical residency there. Uh, we're still in Victoria. And, uh, and first baby was 97. I was still contracting. Uh, and so a lot of that early contract work was done in that way. Uh, I kind of count Starfish as starting because it really was an outgrowth of that work. But I count it as starting in 1999 because that's when we got a chance to work. Uh, we, I mean, me, uh, work on a, uh, ophthalmic ultrasound system with a company that was sort of from New York, had spun out of Cornell University, uh, but one of the main doctors was in Vancouver, which was what oh, found us. And uh, actually, we had a website, which right now sounds like, of course, you have a website, but in 1997, when we did that, it was still a little bit exotic, I'd say. Um, and uh, so there was a sleeping baby. And in fact, that project was of a scale that I needed probably six or eight other engineers to work with. And so I had to move out of the spare bedroom. And um, so that's uh, that's when I considered the, the company starting in 1999. And um, uh, we moved out of the spare bedroom, got, a, got a, basically got some desks in an office uh, that some other friends had in an engineering company. And uh, so when the guys from New York came to visit us, they had a place to come look at us. Because everybody was kind of a contractor, and uh, I would, uh, of course, had no capital to, to fund anything. I had to live uh, once one month to month and get enough money in to pay our debts every month, and uh, um, so it was uh, that was a that was a big adventure. And so we went uh, roughly in less than a year from from basic needs to a working complex thing the size of a desk that did ultrasound imaging of your eye in high frequency you could do all sorts of uh, mechanical contortions and look at your eye from different angles and and process all the data and generate images that unlike anything anybody had ever seen before uh that we showed at the american academy of ophthalmology meeting in dallas that was uh that was, that was a giant leap forward in the aspiration of what our company I guess my, my main question that jumps off that is how did that initial project influence the further development of Starfish into the future? It seems like part of the influence that it had was the fact that you need to bring more engineers on. But was it your first experience at that time in terms of managing a team of engineers to work on a biomedical engineering project? Or am I wrong in that assumption? That's absolutely true. 
So at the, at the time, the company wasn't called Starfish. It was called Scott Phillips Engineering. That was I don't think of that company. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. And uh, actually, I remember when I was in Alberta working for the Alberta Research Council. And the first month, the they, they head of the department came up to me and said, well, you're, you're a pump back. So uh, who should we write the contract? Who should we write the checkout to? How about Scott Phillips Engineering? I said, okay, that sounds fine. So that's, that's literally how much thought went into the, uh, the name. And uh, so that name kind of stuck for the, as a sort of working thing and, and uh, ultimately turned into a, 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 a corporation uh, or incorporated entity. And uh, um, so then, then um, sorry, I forgot the question I was answering. The, uh, I guess I was asking in particular, was that your first experience working oh, with a team of biomedical team, engineers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So, so it wasn't really a biomedical company. It was just mm -hmm. a product design company. Mm -hmm. And just happened that the first project we came along was biomedical. Uh, because, you know, I studied engineering physics, sort of a little more broad based. And I worked in batteries and I worked in natural gas instruments and audio speakers. So nothing medical in any of that early work. Um, we leaned in and kind of figured it out, hired other people, had more expertise, eventually got regulatory infrastructure quality system got uh, got products through the uh, u.s and european regulators in the early years so we kind of uh, figured our or worked ourselves into that space so absolutely had not worked with biomedical engineers although none of the people that were working on this project were biomedical engineers biomedical engineering is um you know in in essence you're probably either a mechanical engineer or an electrical engineer uh with, with some, some capability in physiology or anatomy, uh, it's really what a biomedical engineer is, right? Uh, mostly. So, uh, so we figured it out, but, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but running, running other engineers was, you know, like anything else, just until you got to learn, right? So. Yeah. What was that transition like going from kind of a uh, sole proprietor working by yourself as a contractor to, to running a team. Were there any particular difficulties that you faced, especially in number one, creating a new product? Number two, learning the like, uh, quality, quality management system space, all the regulations, et cetera. Were there any particular hiccups that, you know, you surmounted, uh, which you took lessons from that you still apply today? Sure. That's a great question. Um, there are lots of lessons learned. Like I had to, I was dealing with the clients and this complex thing, and they were they were scattered across North America. Uh, the other people on the client side uh, had to deal with budgeting, had to deal with money, and we didn't have any like accountants or anything like that. We're winging that stuff too. Um, and then learning to run engineers. So I guess that. I feel very lucky that a lot of my in intuition at the time, which was to be highly transparent with the team, here's what's going on, here's the money that's coming in, here's when you're going to get paid, here's the other work that's coming in, uh, just to keep everybody engaged. And it was mm -hmm. kind of required. You know, they could have gone off and done other things. So I needed to, to even though uh, I couldn't even always pay them exactly on time, because that depended on when the client would pay us. So mm -hmm. that was one thing. And that's continued to be our philosophy as a company. Um, I would say uh, also the, with the right amount of transparency to have with clients, how do you communicate? I mean, you don't, you don't need to tell them every little thing, but you need to 
explain to them what, what risks they're taking on, what you've discovered that could, could affect their trajectory. There's always a mm-hmm. temptation in this kind of work. If you discover something that uh, might be bad news to the client, to sort of keep it close to your chest in case maybe you could get it solved and you don't have to re- reveal it to them. Um, but we never really chose that approach. And I think that's, that's stood us a good bit as well. That's truly really their risk. There's so mm-hmm. many other things that we bumped into as issues uh, and skills, but those are. Mm-hmm. Those are really interesting takeaway points in particular, but there are kind of two points of question here that come off of that. Uh, number one is, did that project specifically then uh, become the impetus for you to focus the rest of your work into the future? in the biomedical engineering space, or was there another particular impetus at hand? Um, so basically around that time, you know, there was different potential directions, but I started to get religion on focus. It's always one of the things in entrepreneurship that, uh, and it's a mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make is that they basically say, hey, we specialize in everything that anybody needs. That's our specialty. We can do everything. No job is too big or too small. Whenever I hear that, on the side of a van or see it, see it on the side of a van. I think that guy's an idiot. That's, that's what it really means. That, what, what it really means is you're not good at anything. Is, is, and so you actually, there's a paradox that the more you specialize, the more credibility that you have. And you just have to specialize the right amount to have the right amount of market. So it's a, um, so, uh, we decided to narrow what you mean again, just to, just to met, um, which was a little scary because, you know, there is no medical industry in Victoria. There's mm-hmm. hardly one in Vancouver. So what does it mean to narrow down to and to only working on things that there's not a bunch of local market? Um, but then the nice features of medical are that there are lots of niches. It's complex. The margins the, and the, and the final products are, are reasonable enough that companies can afford to invest in that, in the design. Um, and get it right. And we like the fact that there's complex regulatory because that will scare away people that are uh, not as well organized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to those who are more new to the field of biomedical engineering and design companies overall, what is a design company and what does it do? Oh, sure. So, you know, and that varies a lot from company to company, everybody's got a different take on it. But at the broadest level, it's a services, not a professional services company. Companies come to us, they need a product designed, uh, and then they hire us to do that work. And what we did deliver back to them uh, uh, is, is, a, is a design intellectual property in essence. But of course, we've got uh, and documentation, testing results, something they could manufacture. In fact, pretty pretty early on, we decided to build our own small-scale manufacturing capacity just so we could deliver actual products out to the field for them in the early going. Mm-hmm. And so to- companies in the space tend to either become highly innovative type companies where they're trying to come up with some brand new thing, or they tend to migrate uh, the other way towards uh, uh, where they, they contract to deliver something that meets a specification, and then they... Uh, they want to, to be to have a, a, a uh, an agreement on exactly what they're going to make right up front. Mm-hmm. So we 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 
just be probably, probably because of my personality kind of migrated more towards the innovation side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess to, to push back on that point as well, why specifically would someone need a design company that has a broad approach to helping bring a product from ideation all the way to market? Might sound like a stupid question, but at what point does the begin and what point does the work end? And why couldn't someone just patchwork bring in their own staff in the process of bringing their own startup to life? Yeah, I totally could. Um, uh, but you know, usually if you look at who the people are that do these companies, um, they, they have some things they're really good at and probably they're really good at sort of core research. They may be good at market, market assessment. Um, uh, sometimes they're really good at doing their own in-house engineering, but not necessarily at all. Right. So, and they don't need to, um, if they've got the ability to develop like the proof of concept technology, then you can outsource. You don't need to go build a whole big project. That's one of the challenges of uh, startups is that they get funded incrementally, right? They don't start with $20 million in the bank. They start with half a million dollars in the bank. And, uh, and they're afraid that they might, what happens if, if they run out of money and they got to let people go, all that knowledge and investment disappears. Um, so we kind of address that problem. Uh, mm-hmm. We cost more than for a bit of work than a particular engineer might, but who's to say you're going to get the really great one? Uh, um, and if you have to pause for a while, none of that knowledge is That's really, mm-hmm. really good. Mm-hmm. So to an extent, you're kind of de-risking the experience by having plenty of in-house knowledge that you offer as a service from end to end of kind of the ideation design to small-scale manufacturing process, which is super thoughtful because, as you said again, uh, if people can't necessarily find the right staff necessary to bring a already high-risk startup to life, then mm-hmm. what service you're offering allows for people to patch into essentially tried, shrewd people who know what they're doing so that the process is a bit more de-risk, a bit less terrifying, um, so that yeah. you can actually have yeah, well, if I think that in some ways I could think of us like a, like a, a deal lawyer. You want to go do a hundred million dollar transaction to buy a company and buy two companies, merge them together or something, some sort of complex thing. Um, you can do it yourself or you can go, uh, find a company that does that all day long every day and, mm-hmm. uh, going to cost you whatever, hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars to, to do that transaction. But maybe they'll save you fifty million dollars of, of not screwing it up, right? So, and uh, you don't go into the the deal attorney and say, "Okay, I've got this whole deal figured out. I want exactly like this. They just write out the contract exactly like this." What you do if you're smart is you go in and say, "I've never done a hundred million dollar deal before, so can you tell me what I should be thinking about so I can do the right deal here?" That's why you hire a professional services firm because they know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So. At what point did Scott Phillips Medical become Starfish Medical? Uh, both engineering. Uh, probably about 2004. Uh, we were already uh, heavily doing medical work. There was some, some other medical things like a glaucoma screening machine that for a company in Germany that we were working on in a partnership. Uh, and so then we just doubled down and said, okay, we're going to be just Starfish Medical. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've never looked back. We've never tried to. We never regretted narrowing 
and we didn't wish that we narrowed more. That was just uh, was about the right, mm-hmm. right narrowing complex electromechanical devices selling to a North America wide market. And we were always America wide as well in our focus. And mm-hmm. a lot of companies in our space uh, tend to be a little narrower mm-hmm. in terms of their geographic focus. Or either they're too wa- not too wide, either they're wider than us. Sometimes they're uh, industrial design, mechanical design, covering whatever defense, consumer devices, and medical. I mean, we never wish that we were doing that either. It feels about the right uh, uh, weight, size, shape of market. Mm-hmm. It's always it's it's nobody. There's no rules around any of that stuff, right? We'll yeah, different things. And, yeah, but when you're making those decisions, you don't necessarily you don't know how it's going to go. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, in terms of not knowing how to make decisions, one of the tools that kind of defines to some extent uh, Starfish Medical, if I've read it correctly online, is the Pathfinder process. So for, mm-hmm. for those who can't necessarily, uh, I guess, see anything that I'm talking about right now, which is probably most of you if you're not watching the video, um, there's uh, this diagram that kind of outlines the discrete processes or steps taken by Starfish in order to bring a product from end to end. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor the point and ask you to describe that entire process end to end, Scott, unless you really want to. Um, but the, the, the question that I have here is which one or two experiences or projects were most impactful to, uh, how or why you felt the need to articulate the process as the Pathfinder, you know, diagram that's published online? Sure. So, um, well, there's a couple of pictures that we have online. <laughs> and uh, so one of the interesting things when you sell uh, intangibles, uh, so sell ideas more or less, sell a product design, uh, is how do you make it feel more tangible? But you give it a name. So that's, that's, uh, that's, that's one of our inputs. And when you sell the Pathfinder, it's kind of like a sales tool almost. And you name it and then it becomes easier to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, although when you look at, so Pathfinder to us, uh, is actually a product definition framework. What are all the things that we have to think about as part of defining the right product? Um, and as you go through your career as an engineer and working on different things, what you bump into is you spend a year on something or six months on something, and then you realize you designed the wrong thing. It's very, very common, very easy to, to get into that. You realize there's another level of insight you needed to have had earlier on. So you're always kind of yearning for some sort of a framework to, to, to prevent that. Uh, well, that's essentially what Pathfinder is. It's a list of, of things that we need to consider. And it's more than just making the technology work. It can be IP. It can be a regulatory path, understanding the margins that are needed, reimbursement. So, um, I would say as an engineer, I, I, I had a variety of formative experiences. Um, Early on, that, that led me to the, this uh, this problem. Uh, for example, when I was working in lithium batteries, and I had been uh, directed to to uh, address a uh, leakage issue that I had in these batteries, and uh, and I spent probably four or five months working on this problem, and then then realized that I'd set up the test conditions wrong. I didn't actually understand the success the success criteria, and, uh, and so it just makes you just. Right. Uh, yes. In, I, I just, 
I didn't do anything that was bad for the batteries, but uh, but uh, I made them way more weakproof than they needed to be. And so I spent a lot of I spent you know on the you know was, there was always too many things to do, so I spent way too much time slowing way more thoroughly than the so that's that's uh, um, you know how they talk about engineers on the glass half full. Right? The uh, the the, uh, the engineer looks at half full glass and so that glass is twice as big as it needs to be. But it's an efficiency problem. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, we created Pathfinder, and then also the Starfish commercialization process, which which you showed the chart of. But that's not the same thing. But it's also the what we're trying to get across of that diagram is the essence of the, the, the what's called the phase gate uh, process. The phase gates is a sort of uh, there's points in time where you need to crystallize. The answers to some questions to keep yourself from driving off a cliff. And uh, for example, we had a product a few years back, quite a few years back, um, where we, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in two years. Maybe we spent a million dollars or so at that time of the client's money working on this thing. We were getting ready for transfer to manufacturing, and uh, and the client was in the same time trying to get the technology uh, refined. And we allowed ourselves to talk about manufacturing transfer at the same time as we had this vexing little problem of the technology not working. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and ultimately the whole thing failed. Like that technology approach failed. We had a client had to go raise a bunch more money. Uh, it damaged our relationship with them, even though it was their problem. I mean, nobody wins unless everybody wins, right? Yeah. Right. So. Uh, we got way more disciplined after that to make sure that we had a, at the end of the conceptual development phase, we could say yes to a bunch of, to a list of about 20 or 30 things, um, just to prevent that sort of issue where you get misaligned. You're busy spending a lot, a lot of energy on finishing something while something else is not actually, uh, meeting, meeting the required level. Mm -hmm. So if we could simplify that down to how you would explain that to a five-year-old, how do you explain <laughs> the entire process of what you just the, described the, to them? What I just said? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, once in a while, you have to stop and ask yourself, uh, are we going the right direction or not? And you have to be super disciplined about it. That's how you describe it to a five-year-old. And you do that with process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the structure is absolutely necessary in the extremely complex environment uh, of medical devices because there's like clinical strategy, IP, reimbursement, um, et cetera. There, there's so much to pack in that if you don't formalize it and organize it, it can be very, very easy to get lost. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.